Welcome to a Mosaic uh, this week as we go through the gospel and the life of Jesus of Nazareth. This is teaching number 65 in our series. Uh, and, and within that, we are also in uh, week 15 or part 15, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And today we enter into the final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We enter into chapter 7 today. And I think uh, as long as we make good timing and get there, um, we'll have some fun toward the end, really kind of uh, unpacking and digesting and exploring, uh, I think, a challenging saying of Jesus and where we can let the culture of the day, the idioms of the day, help us better understand and therefore have better theology related to something that Jesus has said and promised us. Uh, but before we get into the Word of God, let's bow our heads for prayer. We pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we would so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, so that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we would embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Mosaic, we love our Bibles, value our Bibles, always encourage you when you come to Mosaic to bring your Bible with you so you can either take notes or just get familiar with the contour and lay of the land of your Bible. If you need a Bible, don't hesitate to grab one in the pew or chair around you. But if you will, please hold your Bible up. And repeat after me. This is my Bible. Jesus is who it says he is. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the word of God. My mind is alert. By God's grace, my heart is receptive. The Bible is the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living Word of God. My encounter with the Bible today will transform and grow my faith. Let's say together, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Move my bookmark over there. Matthew chapter 7 will begin in those opening verses. Again, this is Jesus speaking in his longest continuous discourse that we have in the Bible. Three straight chapters. In chapter 7, uh, Jesus is continuing in many ways. If we recall all the way back to chapter 5 at the beginning... Uh, we kind of debunk that popular idea that Jesus was speaking the Sermon on the Mount to thousands of people. Rather, he was speaking to thousands of people, teaching them, and then he withdrew and had only his disciples with him because that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. The Sermon on the Mount is all about discipleship. It is the expectation that Jesus has of those who would say that they are his followers. And in that opening chapter, he lets it be known it's a high standard, that it, it has a high price, a high 
high cost to follow Jesus because if we say we are followers, our righteousness, and we've broken down that word righteousness uh, to understand what it means in terms of prayer uh, and fasting and generosity and so forth, that it must exceed even that of the religious leadership, that he has something much higher at stake. And then we looked at ways that was true, letter of the law versus spirit of the law, the halakha, the walking out, the living out of the word of God and so forth. And so as we enter into chapter 7, uh, again, it's, it's more words for what a disciple of Jesus looks like when that Martian finally lands on our planet, right, and wants to be taken to our leader and then somehow they have been exposed to the gospels. They're going to say, take me to some Someone who follows this, how would they know we were a follower? They would, they would want to see, do we exercise this? Are we this light? Are we this salt? Okay, so with that, let's look into our text, Matthew 7, uh, verses 1 and 2. Uh, let's read these words of Jesus together. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For with the judgment that you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use to measure, it will be measured to you. So obviously, uh, most everybody on planet Earth, even if you've never even looked at a Bible, probably knows some paraphrase, shortened, out-of-context version of Matthew 7-1 about not judging. Uh, but clearly, it does not mean we can never judge or should never judge uh, because if you go on in Matthew 7, it gives you the qualifications of how to judge, including like, well, you've got to remove the log out of your eye. Then you're in a position to judge. And also, it's impossible to live without making judgments. Uh, you walk outside of your door and decide to cross the street. You, know, you may look both ways, but before you cross, you're making a judgment. Uh, we make judgments all of the time. And so what Jesus is talking about here is when we judge, how should we judge? That's the better context that fits all of the verses when you take them all together and look at it in its most... Um, uh, you know, Sitzim Laban, its most contextually sensitive um, environment, that's what it gets at. And what we're going to find is this. This is the, the simple, shortened version of it. Jesus expects us to make judgments because it's impossible not to make judgments. If someone slaps you in the face, you're going to make a judgment on what to do or what to think about that person. If someone uh, mistreats someone or someone is really good to you, you're going to make judgments about that person. What the context of Matthew 7 is going to flush out for us is this. When you judge, judge favorably. When you judge, judge favorably. Uh, not only because is that beneficial to the person you are judging, but even from a self-interested point of view, it is beneficial to you that you judge favorably because the measure that you use, the way that you judge, that is the standard that is going to be used against you. All right, so judge favorably. This is the context of the small catechism when it speaks about uh, talking about, you know, bearing false witness against your neighbor. What does this mean? Uh, 
I believe that I should fear, love, and trust in God and that I should always give the benefit of the doubt, that I should always hold my neighbor in highest regards, that I should put the best construction on something. It's straight out of the Eighth Commandment, straight out of the Catechism, straight out of the Sermon on the Mount, that when we judge, we judge favorably. Matthew 7 does not teach we're never to judge anyone. It does not teach that. Rather, it teaches to judge favorably because we are also establishing the standard by which we will be judged. And we've already seen this in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus gave over his prayer, the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer. Forgive us as, just as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. So Jesus is developing, he's continuing to develop this theme of measure for measure uh, by forbidding his disciples, both then as well as now, to pass judgment on others in a harsh manner. Again, also note this was not a prohibition on judiciary functions. He was not saying we don't need a court of law or anything like that. Of course, judges in a court of law should judge. Nor did Jesus intend to grant license for sin and subjective morality. Jesus was not thinking about endorsing an alternate lifestyle choice or postmodern pluralism. Neither was he erasing the line between right and wrong, encouraging his disciples to simply wink at sin and let it go and have no judgment regarding it. Because this is a fundamentally important point. Jesus' prohibition on passing judgment, it already assumes that the moral strictures of Torah-keeping Judaism are already in place. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, right? Remember that context. He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to people already justified by grace, through faith, the work of the Holy Spirit's already in their hearts and minds, already governing them. They are on their path of sanctification. Therefore, they're already in the framework of biblical worldview. And so Jesus would never say, chunk out the biblical worldview. It's always still going to be within the biblical worldview and the biblical framework that everything Jesus says has as its borders. So what is Jesus talking about? He warned his disciples against taking on the role of God in judging others. That is to say, disciples of Jesus should not and cannot declare God's condemnation against others, nor can they presume to know God's verdict regarding an individual. For example, a disciple should not call upon God to punish someone else's sin, nor should he point out to his fellows the misfortune and declare that that was just and that they were justly being repaid by God for their actions. The disciples of Jesus should be the most reluctant of all to declare a final judgment, especially regarding someone's eternal destiny or their personal relationship to their creator. And as I've said, James, the brother of Jesus, uh, who is the author of the epistle of James in your New Testament, uh, that epistle of James is a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and he comments on this portion as well. James chapter 4, verse 12, there Jesus' brother says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you who judge your neighbor? 
Jesus warned his disciples away from deciding things like who's saved or who isn't, who, who is, who's making it and who's not making it. Uh, that, uh, you know, speaking of that or exalting themselves over others uh, who will be damned, Jesus is, is shying his disciples away from making those kind of judgments. According to Jesus, a person who makes such assumptions does so at the risk to their own soul. So again, just as a self-interest point of view, Matthew 7, verse 2, for in the way you judge, so therefore that's assuming you're going to make some judgments, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. That's why you're going to want to judge favorably. That's why you're going to want to give the benefit of the doubt. That's why you're going to want to seek to understand first, right? Because by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. The standard of measure refers to a container used for measuring out dry goods such as grain. A dishonest merchant might actually use two different standards of measure. A slightly larger capacity measure for his purchases and a slightly smaller capacity container for resale, right? Uh, that's the image that's being used here when it speaks about the measure, uh, and therefore talking about us and our temptation to maybe have a double standard where we're really harsh on people, where we really hold people to the line, where we are sticklers for the rules with other people. But, you know, with us, it's, it's a little bit different. We, we like to give ourselves a little bit of grace, right? Give ourselves a little bit of understanding. Give ourselves a little bit of an explanation behind what's going on, bigger picture for it and so forth. That's the idea that a merchant would have two different containers to measure, one when he's buying, one when he is selling. But an honest merchant will use the same standard of measure whether he's buying or selling. In Luke's version, what I've dubbed the Sermon on the Plain, it promises that a person who judges others favorably receives the full measure of favor in return. So this is from Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 37. And Jesus says there, And do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And here, again, we are going to be able to see Jesus very much interacting with the culture of his times in this way, uh, and very much in agreement with many of the rabbis of his day, both those that preceded him and those who came uh, immediately after him. Uh, just a few samples so that you can uh, understand the context and that what Jesus is teaching would have been a common expectation of probably almost every rabbi in the first century Galilee of any of their disciples. So from uh, the Mishnah, what's known as Pirkei Avot, sayings that Jesus would have been very familiar with uh, in section 2, verse 5. Hillel. Hillel was the great rabbi one generation before Jesus uh, who had many disciples in the Galilee. Hillel said, do not judge your neighbor unless you have reached his place. In other words, that's seeking to understand until you seek to understand what, why this is the behavior, what's behind it, you need to refrain from your judgment. Or from the Midrash Rabbah, 
The Holy One, blessed be he, said to Israel, the same measure which a man gives is measured out to him. Or in Tractate Sota, uh, folio, or section 1, verse 7, by the same measure with which a man measures out to others, they, meaning the heavenly court, measure it out to him. Jesus based several of his teachings upon this biblical rule of measure. Clement of Rome. Clement is a very interesting person. If you're, if you're so inclined to be a reader and a researcher and really want to know the context of the, the earliest church, if you will, the Clementine literature is worth your read because the, the individual that we know as Clement was a disciple of Peter, the apostle. Clement did not know Jesus personally, never saw Jesus, but was mentored and taught by the Apostle Peter. And so Clement is what we call an apostolic father. He was taught by an apostle or knew the apostles, kind of a a first-generation believer after the apostle. And we have some of the extant writings of Clement in epistle style. Uh, He wrote to the Corinthians, for example, wrote a couple of times to the Corinthians, wrote to the Laodiceans, and so forth. And in one of his epistles, I'm going to read to you, he kind of echoes uh, a teaching of Jesus that sounds very familiar to what we're studying, but it's not an exact quote. So it kind of represents either an unrecorded teaching of Jesus that Peter knew that he passed on to Clement. Or, or something in that vein. But here are Clement's words. Be especially mindful of the words of our Lord Jesus, which he spoke, teaching us humility and long suffering. For he said, Be merciful that you may receive mercy. Forgive so that you may be forgiven. As you do to others, so shall it be done to you. As you judge, so shall you be judged. As you are compassionate, so shall compassion be shown to you. With whatever measure you measure out, the same will be measured back to you. By this command and by these rules, let us, the church, establish ourselves so that we walk with humility in obedience to our Lord's holy words. End quote. And so Jesus here begins in chapter 7 with these words about the measure. Make sure your measure is consistent. For others as for yourself, and that it's favorable, that it's favorable because it is the standard that is going to be used for you. So with that, uh, and that's kind of the context, we go to the next verses, but we bring in all that we've just talked about to better understand what Jesus is talking about. So he knows you're going to make judgments. He knows you're going to do it. He wants you to do it favorably, and he wants you to do it with the understanding that you are setting the standard for yourself. And so then he gives kind of an example. Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. Let's read these words of Jesus together. Why is it that you see the speck in the eye of your brother, but the log that is in your eye you do not notice? Again, kind of speaking to that sometimes double standard that we have where we can find the most minute issue in another, no matter what it is, we find something negative, something to complain about, something to spot out, some kind of failure or foible or disappointment in the other person. But we, at the same time, 
never see any of that in ourselves. Jesus gives this example of the log and the speck in the eye to illustrate the folly that comes when we are condemning of others, when we do not judge favorably. The person who sees the speck of sawdust in his brother's eye remains oblivious to the log in his own. A critical person can acutely observe even the most insignificant of flaws in the character of others, but has no concern for even the most glaring deficiencies in their own character. In the words of the Talmud, quote, let us pick off the straw from ourselves before we do it to others. Or going to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, he says to the Romans, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, measure for measure, for you who judge practice the same things. And Jesus' own fieldwork of Nazareth may have inspired this illustration. Jesus used terminology that would be reminiscent of a carpenter, a log in the Greek, a dokos is a beam of timber, a plank of wood, such as used in weight-bearing capacity and construction. A generation later, Rabbi Torfon complained about the popularity of Jesus' speck-in-the-eye adage when he said this, and I quote, I wonder whether there is anyone in this generation who accepts reproof, for if one says to him, take the speck from between your own eyes, he will answer, take the beam from between your eyes. This is interesting because this is a, a generation after Jesus, a Galilean rabbi complaining that too many people are quoting Jesus because he says anytime you try to correct someone, they throw back at you, oh, you just worry about the log in your own eye, right? And they have, he complains that they're kind of trying to use that as a, a get-out-of-jail-free card, which, of course, that, using it for that, would be taking it outside the biblical concept of the biblical context and worldview. So let's keep reading what Jesus has to say. I want to flip us over a little bit because in Mosaic, one of the things as our goal is when all is said and done, whenever that may be, when we complete Mosaic, we will have read every single word of all four Gospels and a lot of the ways we can accomplish that in a kind of um, uh, the best manner is when we have parallel passages and so forth. So I want to flip over to Luke's kind of version of this teaching. Because Luke includes this, um, and I include the Hebrew there, so again, sometimes it just shocks us out of thinking we already know what the story is and so forth. So the Hebrew word is rav. It means teacher, but it means more than just teacher. It means the one you've really hitched yourself to. It's the one you're banking everything on. It's the one you're literally banking not only life in this world, but life in the world to come on. Whoever that is in your life, that is your Rav. All right? So in Luke 6, verse 40, Jesus says these words. Let's read them together. A disciple is not elevated above his Rav. It is sufficient for every complete disciple to be like his Rav. The high standards of the Sermon on the Mount constitute the righteousness that surpasses that of even the scribes, the Pharisees, and the religious leadership. But are they actually attainable? Jesus did not ask his disciples to achieve 
sinless perfection or moral perfection. He only asked them to commit to a course of discipleship, to commit to seeking after the kingdom and to commit to seeking after righteousness. He set himself before his disciples as an example for them to imitate because at its core, first century Galilean discipleship is always about imitation. Imitation. If you are a disciple, it means you are imitating the one you follow. In Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus tells his disciples, a pupil, a student, is not above his teacher, his rabbi, his rav. But everyone, after he's been fully trained, will be like his teacher. So Jesus says some powerful words there. He, he says, you know, even if we can't fully complete it, it doesn't remove us from the responsibility of committing to the action. Jesus knew that his disciples would, of course, meet with failure and frustration as they attempted to seek the kingdom and practice righteousness. But this is where we learn a very important point. Discipleship is a process of training. It's not an instantaneous transformation. Discipleship is a process. It's a long process. In fact, the Hebrew word for a disciple is talmid, Uh, T-A-L-M-I-D. A Talmud really doesn't mean disciple. It means a learner. And more than meaning a learner, it means a lifelong learner. And so if one is a disciple, it means they are a lifelong learner of the one that they follow. So discipleship is a process, and it's a process of training, which means you're going to have good days of training and bad days of training. You're going to meet goals and reach goals and exceed goals. You're also going to fail at goals, and you're not going to uh, make that measure for that day. It's a process of training. It's not something that happens instantaneously, right? That's where we go back again to our very important adage, All disciples are believers, but not all believers have committed to the process of discipleship. And so we learn that here very well. The disciples must endeavor to be like their teacher. In our case, to be like our Lord, to be like our Messiah. And the first century Galilee, a disciple worked hard to emulate everything that his teacher did, from the way his teacher ate, to the way his teacher dressed, to the way his teacher spoke, to the way his teacher interacted and responded to the things going on around them, to the way his teacher was in their marriage, the way his teacher parented, to the way his teacher did business, you name it, they tried their best to emulate it. And then to faithfully transmit those same teachings and lifestyles to the next generation. The saying preserved in Luke 6.40 appears to have been a common proverbial maxim about discipleship in the first century. It appears in the Midrash in this form, quote, it is sufficient for a servant to be like his master. Now let's flip back over to Matthew chapter 7 and let's read verse 6 together. Let's read these words of Jesus. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, and do not throw your pearls before the pigs, or else they will trample them with their feet and then turn and tear you apart. It's actually a very 
political statement Jesus is making there. Uh, Many people often think that this is a a reference to Gentiles, and, and we'll see. It's not that it's not that, but Jews did not refer to Gentiles as pigs. Jews only referred to one group of people as pigs, and that was the oppressive foreign regime known as Rome, known as Rome. You need to keep that in mind because that will come into play later when Jesus does um, a casting out of evil spirits and he casts them into a herd of pigs, all right? But then that spirit lets it know its name, which is legion. Hmm, you know, what, what was the recent kind of thing that was popular? The majority of men think about the Roman Empire like at least once a day, every day. I don't know if that's true for you guys out there, but if it is, what's a legion? It's part of how the Romans did their military, especially when they were in uh, a country that they had recently acquired, right? And so Jesus casting legion into pigs and then hurling it into the sea was quite, quite controversial, right? It's more than we think it is. And same thing is going on in this statement as well. Jesus tells his disciples not to give what is literally in Hebrew, kadosh, holy to the dogs. Holy or kadosh in context is referring to the meats from the altar uh, that had been sacrificed that primarily was to feed the priesthood. Uh, saying don't take what was sacrificed in the temple and then feed it to the dogs. Uh, The Talmud agrees, quote, we may not redeem any dedicated sacrifices in order to feed our dogs. Jesus borrowed from the temple imagery to warn his disciples against teaching that which is holy to those who have no interest and maybe uh, have an antagonistic attitude toward that which is holy, who have no respect or desire to learn it. That's just why he often would teach in parables. We'll get to that when we get to the parable section in Mosaic. He tells them not to cast their pearls before pigs. Rabbinic literature refers uh, to the many interpretations, uh, again, that pigs is code for Rome, the oppressive Romans. A dog can be idiomatic, for an idolater, a pagan. Pig, again, implies Roman. Rabbi Lichtenstein, our good friend, our, our Orthodox rabbi who discovered the Gospel of Matthew in Hebrew in the trash can, rescued it, thought it was the Torah, began reading it only to discover it wasn't the Torah, but that he couldn't put its pages down, was converted, became a follower, writes a commentary on Matthew. He interprets this saying as a parallel to that of Rabbi Hillel. If you see a generation that does not cherish the words of God, then hold back your words. Perhaps Jesus was warning his disciples to be alert and cautious when they were amidst the idolaters and the Romans. It also reminded me of a story of Dr. Martin Luther. Uh, It's one of my favorite stories of Luther. Uh, He would preach regularly, and he preached a particular sermon on the Gospel of Luke. And then the next week, he preached the exact same sermon, like exactly the same. And no one said anything. And then he preached it a third week in a row, exactly the same. 
A few people privately came to him and said, you know, are you feeling okay? You, you, do you know you preached this last week and I'm pretty sure you preached it the week before? But he preached it a fourth week in a row. And he preached it a fifth week in a row. And finally, there was enough of kind of an outrage of like, why are we coming if all you're going to do is preach the exact same thing over and over again? He said, I'm withholding the rest of the word of God from you because none of you are listening. So he wasn't completely withholding and saying, damn you all to hell, nor is Jesus saying that. But he is saying, be cautious with your words and be cautious what words you give to people. And so Luther was still giving them law and gospel. He was still giving them the very words of God. But he was saying, until you repent, until you change, until you are ready to hear more words, you're getting nothing. That is not throwing what is holy to the dogs. That is not casting pearls before the pigs. The dog and pig terminology can sound offensive to our modern ears, particularly to the ears um, of 21st century believers. But Jesus does not refer to those Gentiles and pagans and idolaters and Romans who will forsake paganism and take hold of the God of Israel. His warning always has to be in balance with his interaction that we see throughout the Gospels, like with the centurion in Matthew 8, or his commission to the disciples in Matthew 28. It's balance and it's context. Be careful with your words. Know your audience is another way of saying this. Know your audience. And finally, I think this will be fun for us as we look at Matthew 7, verse 7 together because this is often used in a theology of glory um, or a word of faith kind of context, uh, name it and claim it theology, uh, and yet it doesn't seem to hold up. At least in my personal life, it doesn't seem to hold up. So either Scripture's wrong or I'm wrong. And usually if that's the two choices, it's a safe bet to assume I'm the one in the wrong, right? So Matthew 7, verse 7, has Jesus saying these words, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Okay. All right, Jesus. I'm going to take you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I've asked for a new car for the last five years. And I keep seeking for it. I keep looking under my garage every morning. I go down the neighborhood, start clicking. Nothing's beeping. You know, I'm knocking. I'm knocking on car doors. I'm knocking on people's doors. I'm knocking on car dealership doors saying, hey, maybe you're the one God is inspired because I've been asking for it. He says, if I ask for it, I'll get it. If I seek for it, I'm going to find it. If I knock, it's going to be open to me. And yet, it doesn't seem to be working out. But you see, that wouldn't be the context of the greater Sermon on the Mount either. So here we're going to let Jesus' culture, Jesus' language, and the context better understand what he's encouraging his disciples to do and to live by when he says these words that sure seem like a theology of glory, a name and enclaimment, word of faith, I speak it and it's mine, kind of theology. So, 
Let's look at it. Let's break it down. And at the end, I'll have, you can have your phones ready. You want to take a picture of it. So you don't have to worry about keeping up with it all the way to the end. I'll give you a nice, clean, mosaic, international version translation when we're all done. All right? Let's break it down. Ask. In the Hebrew language, Jesus' language, the culture of the Galilee where Jesus spoke this to Galilean ears, there are two ways you go about asking in Hebrew. Okay? The first is lavakesh. It means to ask for things, to ask for stuff, to make a request, Allah, like I was speaking. I would like a new car. I would like a new home. I would like a new job. That's one way to ask. What's fascinating, though, is you look through how the Gospels have either been translated into Hebrew or even some of our old manuscripts that are in Hebrew from the 13th, 14th century and so forth. It doesn't have Jesus lavakeshing or saying lavakesh here. It has them saying she'alu from Lishol, which means not to ask for stuff, but to ask a question. To ask a question. Okay. Again, don't worry. We're going to put it all together. But Jesus is saying ask, not for stuff. Ask a question. Seek. As it was with ask, there are two ways to go about seeking in the Hebrew language. The first is likapus. In fact, in modern Hebrew, this word means research. If you go to a university in Israel that's a research-based university, it's called the likapus. It's where you research a cure for cancer and so forth. It's to search for things. To research a topic. Jesus isn't saying le capoose. He says der shoe, which comes from lidrosh, which is where we also get the word midrash or darash. And darash, even in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses uses this word when he tells the people, search the words of the Lord. And he's referring to essentially that the Torah is being written down, that they are to search these words for meaning in their life and for what they are to do and how they are to go about things. All the way back in Deuteronomy is the biblical context for this. But throughout the Bible and throughout the Hebrew language, Lidrosh, Darash, specifically means to seek the Scriptures to seek understanding in and from the scriptures. It means to dig into your Bible. That's the word Jesus uses. So ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. And, oops, knock. Difku in Hebrew. That's an idiom. It's still an idiom today. Difku literally means knock, but in a... Hebrew-speaking Hebrew ear, it means prayer. It means prayer. That's one of the words they use to pray. It means knocking on God's door. It means prayer. 
Okay? So where we're at right now is ask your questions, search the scripture, and pray. But there's also something else going on in the translation. For those who maybe have studied other languages, you know that many languages, Hebrew is one of them, Greek is one of them, Spanish is one of them, French is one of them, Latin is one of them. Uh, there are many of them where sometimes when the subject is a pronoun, like he, she, or it, you don't actually have to have the pronoun he, she, or it because the verb lets you know it's a he or she or an it because of the way it's been parsed. Like there's a feminine form and a masculine form, sometimes a neuter form, right? And so it's redundant in those languages to do that. It would be like saying he, he asks because the verb itself implies he if no subject, no proper subject is listed. But in Hebrew, it can also be translated or understood as he. In other words, it's he, comma, it. So what if, instead of translating it as it, seek and you will find it, and so forth, knock and, you know, ask and you will receive it, what if we understood it as he? This is the translation of Matthew 7, verse 7, for your Mosaic International Version. Jesus is saying to his disciples, ask your questions. And he, not it will be given to you, he will give you the answer. Search the scriptures and you'll find what you're looking for. Pray, and he will open the way for you. See how that corrects the theology of glory? It corrects the name it and claim it because it refocuses what we're to be doing. Questions are great, so ask them because God will give you an answer. Okay, fine. But you're going to have to search the scriptures. Because that's where you're going to find what you're looking for in the scriptures, in the word of God. And pray. And when you pray, it doesn't mean you receive everything you've asked for. It just means the way will be open for you. Not it will be given to you. He will open the way. Not it will be open. He will open the way for you. That's Matthew 7, 7 in its original context.